0: The three of us are going to offer a couple of thoughts for us to ponder this morning. I want to start with uh, a scene at the beginning of the movie Selma, which many of you haven't seen, and if you haven't, it's really worth seeing. The very beginning of that movie, we see these four adorable girls dressed up in their Sunday school best at church coming down the stairs on a Sunday morning. And anyone who would not find these four girls heartwarming and innocent would really be in need of a compassion transfusion. (laughs) I don't want to be in that mental space, I can tell you. And then we hear this ear-shattering explosion that shocks us and shatters our world and theirs. And then we realize that this is part of a historical moment when there was an explosion at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963. And anyone with even half a heart, maybe even a quarter of a heart, understands the tragedy of this event and the extreme moral decay of its perpetrators. And so we name those responsible with the words that fit their actions. I'm kind of thinking of the dragon story right now about naming things. Wikipedia says that this was an act of white supremacist terrorism. That's the phrase that they used. So this event in its tragedy, is not hard to interpret. It's not hard for us to figure out what's going on in this event. We know who's morally responsible. We know who's innocent. It does not require subtle reasoning to understand this action. There's no argument that can justify this. And the perpetrators are indeed what Wikipedia says they are—they are white supremacist terrorists. On the streets of Charlottesville, we encounter more contemporary white supremacists and nationalists. Not long ago, and they are not hiding their identity at all. They just really, really right out front with it. This is who we are. Nazi slogans. They're mean. They're inciting violence. They're overtly hostile to African Americans, to LGBTQ folk, to anyone who really speaks out for inclusiveness. And these people are also obvious in their racism. It's it's not hard to figure out. Anybody can look at that and see what's going on. They openly chant things like blood and soil, which is a Nazi chant from the 1930s. So one does not need a PhD in philosophy to see who they are and what they stand for. Now many of us who fall under the vague category of white, which by the way, we gotta do a program on what the word white means. That is such, wow, that's such a charged up word. But those of us who fall under this vague category of white We are appalled by this obvious racism, this obvious white supremacy, and many of us take a stand against it. We sing, we shall overcome. We don't vote for racist candidates, at least as far as we know. We celebrate Martin Luther King Day. We teach our children to respect everyone and treat everyone equally. And these are good and wonderful things to do. I'm glad we do those things. And yet racism continues in our country and it's not just about the obvious white supremacists in Charlottesville. The dragon raises its head in countless less obvious ways that are not as quite as clear to pick up on. They're like the next level down. So, For example, it appears in the struggle for voting rights in our country, in divergent incarceration rates for black and brown and white people. It appears in hiring and firing and housing practices. It appears in unequal school funding, in policing practices. It appears in jokes that are told in workplaces in ridiculous lies told about an African-American president and in the voter backlash that gave us one of the tellers of these lies as our current president. It appears in the very different response that we see now to the opioid drug crisis compared with the response to the cocaine crisis 20 and 30 years ago. A member of our church wrote a wonderful letter to the editor about this just about a week ago. So it appears in many forms, and they're subtle. Discrimination and racism and white supremacy are not just obvious, but often subtle. Sometimes ingeniously masked, often not even noticed by those of us who have this strange Designation called white. How would we notice necessarily when we are not always the ones affected, not the ones that the security guards follow in the department stores, just as they followed young Barack Obama and the young Bryan Stevenson who wrote Just Mercy and countless other people of color. So even those of us who are liberal, who are progressive, and who sincerely want to be allies, we can unknowingly be insensitive, strangely unaware of what may seem to be blatantly obvious to another person who is the target of an injustice. Sometimes we just don't see it. And sometimes... We can think we know the answers when we are not yet even fully seeing what is going on. So even those of us who are fundamentally decent and caring people can do some unfortunate things even when we are trying to help. And I know actually that I have done that when I was trying to help. I have done some not very smart things in my life. So I'm, I'm part of that because we're swimming in the ocean of a racially biased culture. We swim in that water. Look who our leader is. Look at the people in power who set the tone for our country. Some of them are blatant in their racism. They don't even hide it. So yes, there is a wave of opposition that's gaining strength but the move to a country of peace and justice will not occur until we see the not very obvious injustices of our culture. Not just the obvious ones, but the subtle ones will have to become tuned to see that better the encoded racism that never mentions race, the microaggressions committed even by those of us who don't even know we're doing it, we have to go beneath the surface. We'll have to train our eyes to see things that we may not yet see. We just have to get better at it. We have to get better at it. We have to wake up to what is going on. As uh, Mark Morrison-Reed said here several years ago, it's not about guilt. It's about understanding and becoming more skilled and more knowledgeable. This is a deeply spiritual journey that is open to us. And as we take this journey, as I hope we will, we will all feel liberated. All of us. We will have aha experiences. We will sometimes feel foolish, but we'll discover a deeper sense of connection and of common purpose, and of what it is to love. Reflecting on the um,
1: the words that we had earlier uh, for our moment of giving, uh, reminded me of a scripture that I wanted to share with you. Uh, This comes from the book of Matthew, and these are words that are um, said to be words of the prophet uh, Jesus. Um, And it's a story that I'd like to share with you. Uh, It can be found at Matthew 7, uh, and we will start reading here. Um, At verse 3. Why then do you look at the straw in your brother's eye, but do not consider the rafter in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, allow me to extract the straw from your eye when, look, there is a rafter in your own eye? Hypocrite, first extract the rafter from your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to extract the straw from your brother's eye. Thinking about uh, uh, judging um, and uh, moving towards understanding white supremacy, I wanted to share a little bit of uh, some of my experience at the Growth, Thrive, Shift. Uh, retreat that happened just prior to General Assembly down in New Orleans this year. Uh, Grow Thrive Shift is a part of the Unitarian Universalist College of Social Justice, uh, which is an opportunity for youth and young adults uh, to meet and work together on understanding racial justice uh, and for having a, a solid faith foundation um, and solid spiritual foundation in addressing uh, racial justice. Uh, This program is set up with two different cohorts. Uh, The cohorts are the Thrive cohort, which is UUs and UU-adjacent individuals of color, uh, and the Shift cohort, which is UUs and UU-adjacent white individuals. Within our Thrive cohort, uh, we had an opportunity to sit together, and we really... um, thinking about that verse where it's talking about the straw in your eye. I don't know if you've ever had something in your eye. It's very painful. It can be painful. Um, I have allergies and will get an eyelash stuck in my eye. And that is probably the most excruciating pain I ever experienced. Um, But it makes it hard to see. It makes it hard to see how white supremacy is impacting our lives, because it is the water that we all swim in. That means it's also the water that people of color swim in, too. Uh, Within our space, we had to come to an understanding um, that these ideals of white superiority exist within our own cultures uh, when we look at how we view other communities of color. Um, some stories that came out of this, this event was uh, one um, individual who's one of our leaders told a story about uh, her time working at a university. While she was there, uh, she worked with uh, student-registered organizations, uh, including uh, BSU, Black Student Union, um, and the Asian Pacific Islander Student Union. And she told a story specifically of the Asian Pacific Islander uh, (coughs) Student Union. She had a conversation with her students as to why it appeared um, that the students who identified as Indonesian were being treated differently than the rest of the students within uh, their club. Uh, they were t- treated poorly amongst the, the other Asian Pacific Islander students. And one of her students said to her, uh, this is being a, a black woman who's working with this, this uh, organization, um, that the, uh, those Indonesian students were the, uh, the blacks... Of the Asian community, only using a not so subtle, not so nice word, specifically the N word, to describe the Indonesian students. The, black, the anti-blackness and the, the, the white supremacy that uh, affects us all seeps into our communities of color as well. This idea of the um, what is often called the ideal minority, uh, which is um, sometimes considered to be an Asian person, a person of color, uh, to be the ideal of what minorities should look at like, or even within communities, Latin communities or black communities, lo- go, looking for a s- style of hair or appearance that is to be considered beautiful, to be more white, is that white supremacy st- seeping into our community as well. These are conversations that within the Thrive cohort we had with each other. We, ha- we shared tears, we shared our, our stories uh, of oppression and struggle with each other. Uh, one of the uh, times that we met with the SHIFT cohort, I asked a specific question uh, to the SHIFT cohort, um, which was, have you cried together? Um, and it was the answer. The answer that they gave was no. <laughs> we we haven't really cried. It was thinking more about the practice of how to not be a racist, how not to have racist tendencies, or how to uh, work with communities of color. Um, it, it was more on the thought process and the practice versus the spiritual and the deep feelings of what white supremacy means to them as well as it means to us. Uh, one of the reflections that one of the SHIFT cohort <coughs> members shared uh, uh, was actually written out, and I'd like to share that with you. This is from Maria uh, Iverson, who's a young adult from the UTAN Universalist Church of, uh, in Vermont, Montpelier. I believe, from Vermont and uh, she recorded, during an activity from the Beloved Conversations curriculum, we explored the values of driving us towards our justice-seeking goals and the values that stop us from reaching those goals. We ended up wading into what secretly terrified and freezes us. Suddenly, we realize our racism is bound up in our own weakness, weakness, weakest places. From that time on, we were uh, definitely bonded and opened, but we had still only scratched the surface. There was a painful moment just before the program ended when we had to face that even with our best intentions, we sometimes still do harm. So we started again. We read our covenant again and recommitted to it. We shared feelings. Some of us cried. Some of us held hands or leaned against each other. Then our hearts laid open. We brought our broken voices together to sing Spirit of Life. I cannot do the work of racial justice with my mind alone. I cannot just watch documentaries and even just call legislators. I have to grieve that I can that I contain and must unlearn white supremacy. I have to show up with vulnerability. I have to let love crack me open so that when I cry, I will not be to weaponize my guilt, it will be to create bonds that hold me accountable to people of color and other allies as I teach my spirit to shift." Uh, You can find the rest of her uh, words at the College of Social Justice website. Uh, The title is, "But But Have You Cried Together? Reflecting back on the story of uh, in Matthew 7 uh, and what we just read from Maria uh, we have the beam the eye in our eye if you if you can uh, imagine a log sticking out of your eye it might be kind of difficult to see clearly um, when we are addressing white supremacy or the, the symptoms of white supremacy especially when it is so much blinding us from our what it is itself. It's easy to fall into the pattern of white savior. Uh, this is to look at the symptoms of white supremacy within communities of color and say this is how we should fix it. When it is uh, the communities of color that see more clearly what impact of white supremacy has within their community. Um, I think it is uh, very important that as we enter this time where we're having these beloved conversations, as we're pulling this beam of white supremacy out of our eyes, that we realize that it will be painful and that we will be vulnerable um, and that we give the opportunity for the uh, communities of color here in the city to come to us and to lay out the needs that as they see it to improve their community and to allow them to lead us into addressing white supremacy within our community.
2: A funny thing happened to me Friday while I was at the deli counter of my neighborhood grocery store. You kind of need to imagine how this delicatessen is arranged. It's in an L shape and on one part of the L, There are the meats, the cheeses, desserts, and salads. And on the other part of the L, it's the uh, shrimp and chicken and other fried goods. So I went and I was clearly standing in the cheese and meat side of the delicatessen. And the chicken side is about 12 feet away over here. So I was standing getting ready to give my order when the person who was working in the delicatessen said to me do you want chicken? Now (laughs) I was clearly on the other side and I'll tell you I just kind of backed up a little bit. And the things I didn't say were if I wanted chicken, I would be on the chicken side of the deli. I didn't say what makes you think I want chicken. Is it because all black chicken love the black people love them some chicken? I didn't say any of that. I just blinked instead and said, "No." And by the way, I haven't eaten chicken in 25 years. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure I didn't have that... I wasn't giving off a chicken vibe. (laughs) Okay, some people would probably ask, well, why is that racism? And it probably seems like a minor thing, but it's one of the kinds of incidents I would call... Death by a thousand paper cuts. Most of the things that happen are more serious and I can kind of laugh about that one. But the problem is that stereotypes are part of the white supremacy chain. What are the other assumptions that people make? A person who says she's black, she wants chicken. Oh, she's probably not very trustworthy. She's probably probably not very well educated. And I'm just wondering if she's not maybe a little bit stupid. And so, why is everything about race? What about this example where a person, what about this example where a person in an interracial relationship wrote on Facebook and talked about I don't know, 10 or 12 of the very recent things that had happened uh, to her and her husband. So you look down this list, and of course one of the responses was, why does everything have to be about race? All right, let's say that some of it wasn't about race. Or maybe that that couple was overly sensitive. Or maybe they were pre-offended. Pre-offended is a term that I first heard in seminary that says don't assume everything that is said or happened is about race. Don't be pre-offended. But I have to tell you there's a familiar cliche Even a broken clock is right twice a day. I may tell a story of something that happens to me. This happens quite often. And someone who identifies as white will have an example of how that very same thing happened to them, thus proving it wasn't racism. I look at these objections as a sign that the person doesn't know or hasn't thought much about the implications or the history or the pathology of racism. I ask myself, why is it so important to deny my feelings and experiences and those of other people of color? I think it is because people want to reject the fact of racism and the impact of racism White supremacy is an insidious form of racism. It's also a term that has been used to describe some of the most despicable people in history. We don't like these words. We don't want to be associated with these words. We are not white supremacists. But unfortunately, we are all caught up in that web, that perpetuates racism. We don't want to see it because we would have to admit our complicity in it. And if we admitted it, we would have to do something about it. Something that I talk about every time there is a murder in Peoria is we need to stop saying When are black people going to stop killing each other? We hear it spouted often, sometimes by members of the black community, or by other people of color, or it's implied in news broadcasts. Now, the person who picked up that gun and killed another human being is responsible for that choice, but there's much more to it. When are black people going to stop killing each other? we hear that white supremacist question without realizing it is a reframing of the truth. This is subtle. It's subtle because it takes the crushing influence of supremacist institutions, laws, morals, sanctions, unwritten rules, and frames the problem as a black problem and we buy into it. It makes black people responsible for resolving the issues that created, that were created, to manage, subvert, (coughs) castrate, malign, and infantilize them, infantilize us. What if these institutions were in place to be as fair to African Americans, As to white Americans, access to good education, good health care, fair housing, equality under the law, voting rights, banking, and jobs. Do you think African Americans would still quote unquote be killing each other? It's time for us to start looking beyond the surface and start understanding what is really happening. In closing, I would like to address my personal perspective. I am sometimes asked if I experience racism in this church community, and when I said yes every week, people are shocked. I've been a member of this church for 20 years, and only seriously considered quitting twice during that time. It's quite a long time ago, and it was regarding my experiences in the choir and a congregational meeting I was lead, leading. And I wasn't, I questioned whether I should even say the circumstances, but I thought everyone will be, might want to be asking me, and so now you know. and you might want to know why I stayed. Ultimately to become your assistant minister. First, let me say that the comments or actions usually strike me as a kind of prejudice and I attribute it mainly to a lack of understanding or ignorance or carelessness and only rarely with true malice. I'll tell you uh, something someone said to me be- before the dedication of, of this beautiful building. And uh, many of you probably don't know that I was the board president uh, for two terms while we were building. And someone walked up to me and said, you're not a token. You can really do the job. And they thought that was a great compliment. Those are the kinds of things that um, are said. So why do I stay? I stay because of the theology. Unitarian Universalism comes closest to reflecting my religious beliefs, and the way that I want to travel in the world. I stay because I have come to love this community with its joys and sorrows, with its principles and its struggles. Most of us are invested in being the change we want to see in this world. I am convinced that we are willing to work toward a better world. We just have to decide if we want to simply be among those who want to support the rhetoric of justice and equality, or if we are ready to go further and interrupt the white supremacist institutions so that there is actual justice and equality. May it be so.